Second Peter 3, 8 through 14. Dear friends, do not let this one fact escape your notice, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as, are as one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some consider him acting slow, slow in acting. Rather, he is patient toward you, on your account, not wishing any to be destroyed, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be laid bare and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be brought to light. Since all these things will be dissolved in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, when the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the elements laid bare and melting away? But according to his promise, we await new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Therefore, dear friends, as you look forward to this, be diligent, making every effort to be brought to light by him, being the same as Jesus, without spot or blemish, and at peace. Thank you, Rachel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, for those new with us, we've been in 2 Peter for a few months now, and we're finally there. We've made it. We're at the end, the last little turn, and we're home. Um, We've been journeying through this second letter that Peter writes to his family, a letter that started off with this kind of declaration, this grand declaration that, um, that was written on the assumption that Peter's people, the, the, his faith family, his dear friends that, that Rachel just read about, um, are firmly standing on a reliable faith, um, that they have a steadiness in their calling, um, that they receive through Jesus, that what they've obtained in Jesus, that's equal standing and equal preciousness to Peter's, is what he assumes that their life is built upon. That, that, that what they can experience daily in their living is, is this life full and forever in Jesus. And that this intention of Peter's is to remind them, um, his letter is written to remind them of what is their sure foundation and to help them discern how to live well on that foundation, to help them um, figure out what it looks like to make sure that where they started in Jesus, they get to finish in Jesus, right? Like it's kind of what we're all after in faith, isn't it? Like we, we the, the, the grand beauty of all God's done for us in Jesus starts us off in this life of faith, right? Whether we discovered it um, uh, through a sermon, through an experience, through uh, somebody sharing Jesus with us, whatever it was, we were kind of open to this, life that God had for us that we'd kind of never seen before. A life that, um, um, that, that allowed us to see what God had done for us in Jesus. And like we, we went after that life. I mean, for the most of us, at least those that I know, like that's why you're in this room. You're after that kind of life, a life with God, a life um, that has lived well with God, a life that has lived well with others. And Peter assumes the same thing for his faith family. And, and so much does he assume it that he says, hey, I'm just reminding you of what's already established, you're already established in, the truth you're already established in. And so I'm, I'm telling you these things, the things that are going to come in chapters two and chapter three of his letter, um, to help make sure that you end where you started and that what you build on the foundation will be, um, will be proven true, will be true, be true and um, um, fruitful and effective in this life of faith. It is a letter penned to dear friends who Peter assumed could experience what Jesus prayed for that our Father's kingdom could come on earth as it is in heaven. He said this to them, he says, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is what, Jesus, this is what Peter assumes of his people, that they have through the power of God been granted the, this life of Jesus through the knowledge of Jesus that has come to them through the promises of Jesus so they may become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world because of desire. Daily life and life to its fullest potential is what Peter says that is the expectation Peter has for his people. All through cultivating our true vocation, the glory and excellence of Jesus in our life, the thing that we're called to. And so he says in the first chapter, um, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort to bring to life this thing that God has given you in Jesus. And be all the more diligent, zealous even, to confirm the reliability of this calling and election. To, to, to confirm the reliability of what Jesus has called you to. On what God has chosen, not out of obligation, but out of invitation to extend to you. To make, make 
open for you. In some ways, Peter's describing this joining of heaven and earth, right? Through the person and power and promises of Jesus and his people. Through, through ones who are bought by Jesus, slaves and apostles who are owned and honored, freed and sent. This is how Peter begins his le- this letter with this kind of like vivid picture of what it means to be divine partakers, partakers of divine nature, what it looks like for heaven and earth to come together in and through Jesus and in and through us. And it's the same picture that Peter comes back to at the end. Peter's walked us through in chapter two, the obstacle of effective, fruitful, and joyous faith. Our tendency to follow poor models of life with God and with others. That's what chapter two is all about. I think we got a slide that this says shows that just in case. That our tendency, what, what, what we struggle with, what every generation struggles with, um, including ours, is following models who uh, lead with the words of Jesus, but not the ways of Jesus. And he says that's what's going to keep us and trip us up. That's what's going to get us off course. And so he wants his faith family to be aware of that. And then in chapter three, he says, but not only will our tendency to follow poor models, bad models lead us off the course that we're on, um, but, it, but it, sometimes we tend to trip up um, because we get tripped up in our faith because we, um, we've kind of escaped our notice of how God actually works, how God worked in the past, how he's working in the present, and how it'll continue to work in the future. And that's all because we've lost sight of the model. So last week, we kind of we began chapter three and looked at what we tend to overlook and why what we miss out on when we do. And today we're going to kind of conclude chapter three with why does that matter? Why does it matter to, to, um, to, to miss out, to escape our notice how God actually works? We're blinded by our forgetting. Um, oftentimes we lose memory. We fumble through faith when God's action in the past is overlooked. That's what we talked about last week. And therefore his acting in the present escapes our sight. And so we struggle to know what God is up to and why he's up to and how he's working. And our faith feels difficult and hard. Our faith feels clunky. Um, 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 and, and we tend to stumble into misery is the way he puts it in chapter one. Because we're tripping over w- what we're missing. Um, um, that even in these last days, when we overlook how God has acted on, beha- on our behalf and the behalf of his creation against evil, from the foundation of the world, we tend to trip up on what God is doing today. But that's the beauty of Peter's reminder to remember. That's why he's writing this letter. Um, When we call to mind, arouse our memories, we see that we were where we started and in the end. That we are where we started and where we'll end. Heaven and earth together again through Jesus. Like that is where we started. Chapter one, that's where we're going to end. That's where your life started. The life of faith, the life God intends for you started in Jesus. And that's where it ends in Jesus. And so let me explain why it matters for us and for our faith family people who know jesus who become like jesus who do the things jesus did all for the good of um, our own souls and the lives of our neighbors and community so remember last week that peter pointed out a relatively common and sadly ironic tendency of us jesus followers that oftentimes we are prone to think that god's plan in the way of jesus is the problem to the happy and whole life after Ironically enough, as those who who want to have God's plan for us, want to know God's plan for us and live God's plan for us, ironically, we sometimes think that the way God goes about working his plan is the very obstacle to our happiness. And it's because it works very opposite to the way the world works, right? I mean, think about God's plan in Jesus and how his plan wasn't just to come and to destroy all that would keep people from... uh, um, from, from living in the fullness of him, it was this subtle plan, right? To come through a person who died on a cross, who rose again. And so we sometimes get confused about how God's working in our life because we forget how God has worked in history and God is working even today. Now, we might not vocalize it so bluntly, right? That we, that we think that the way God's work is, is the problem, but practically we live that way. Um, and what we live, when we live that way, we believe that the way God takes action through the cross of Jesus is a bit silly. Um, at, at best, maybe it's silly to us, or at worst, we think it's ineffective in the real world. And so we go about living in the same way that the world lives, striving to get the same things that God has promised us that we think are good things that God has given us a desire for, but doing it in the same way, in the same means that has, has always been the means of humans to trying to take ownership that's from God for themselves, right? And that's, that's what we tend to stumble into. 
That's only because we overlook how God has been taking action in the world from its foundations, from the beginning of creation, uh, the beginning of chapter three. And that way, this is how God, I'm just going to sum this up. So if you missed last week uh, or if you're new with us, I would encourage you to kind of listen back to it. Um, I'm going to say some things that may sound a little confusing, but we walked through it in detail last week. But what we saw last week in the first part of chapter three is that the way God works is through powerful, patient, compassionate justice. That's how God's actually been working from the foundation of the world. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 sum it up. Um, best God's human action in human history. This is how the Lord understands himself and how his people understand him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and bounding in goodness and truth, who keeps steadfast love, that is mercy, to the thousand generations. That doesn't mean it ends at a thousand generations. It's just a way of saying forever. Like he keeps this forever, beyond number. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? But who will by no means allow evil to get away with it? Who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin? This is before Jesus, right? Like we all say yes and amen to this. Like, yeah, of course we know that in Jesus. But this is from the very beginning of the formation of God's people. This is how God's communicated himself to be. God's action on behalf of his children and creation against evil continues to follow this course of judgment. This exposure, imprisoning, and condemnation of all that is opposed to his goodness and will, right? It's all that that reeks of death in this world and all that pools from life and it's flourishing. He imprisons it, he keeps it, he guards it. And not only does he judge it in that way, but he also restores and brings salvation and brings into flourishing. It doesn't just keep evil from consuming. He actually allows life to flourish. That even in these last days, as we saw last week, that Jesus is doing this through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That this is how God is acting in our moment. God overcoming evil and restoring flourishing, keeping under guard that which leads to death and rescuing that which is meant for life through the way of Jesus might feel like it's not working at times if we're honest. Right? Does it sometimes feel like that's not true? Like that, that, that God isn't guarding against the evil and keeping it at bay, not letting it win, and at the same time not allowing, um, not always rescuing, it seems, in the way we would want our lives from the way of death. But remember, our Father's intent is to save but not destroy. That's what we saw last week. To forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but not let evil persist without end requires, this is what we saw in Genesis, right? Requires God not to destroy all that is evil in this moment, which would include you and I. But instead, to act mercifully and justly, kindly and compassionately, persistently, to transform all that is evil, to purify and make good all that was evil so that humanity might be flourished, so his creation might be flourished, so that, that as, as um, Rachel read, so that all may reach repentance and none should be destroyed. So what keeps the world spinning is God's powerful, persistent, transformative patience. That's what we saw last week. His love for right living, right relationship and justice with drenches the world in which we await each morning. That's where we left last week. That the world that we wake in, every single morning that we have breath, think about this, every single morning that we have breath, we wake into the world of God's powerful, persistent mercy and grace. Not to lead to destruction, but to call us into life as it really is, life in him. How does that change our life of faith, our daily interactions with others, if we wake into the, into the mercies of the Lord every day? What would be different about our lives if every morning we woke up and we, the first thing that we breathed was thank you to God? Because we recognize that this breath today was God's continued patience so that myself, my neighbors, my friends, my family, the community that I'm lived in might actually receive his mercy and grace in turn and find life in him. 
that that was the foundation of the day. And whatever else might be going on in my life, I wake into that, that his mercies are new for me each morning as well as those around me. But because we're prone to forget, to forget that God's powerful, patient, compassionate justice is Jesus dead and alive again, is the way God's acting in our world, is this thing that seems so slow, as Rachel read for us in, the, in, in uh, chapter 3, verse, verse 9, I think, right? It says um, in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. He doesn't act slowly. as He doesn't delay, even though we think he delays. Like, even though we think that God might not be acting, but he is acting. But in case we forget, because of the slowness, because of the subtleness of the way God acts, Peter gives us a picture of the future. He gives us a concise image of what this future is in verse 10. Verse 10 begins this way. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, we hear that and we tend to think, what, like, it's going to come quickly? I mean, who, that, whose kind of first thought is that when you hear thief? Maybe you just kind of taught that way or whatever. So, so do, do thieves come quickly or do they come stealthily? I mean, maybe they, maybe they steal something really quick out of underneath your, your, um, your, you know, your gaze or whatever. But generally, like you're not sitting around walk, looking for like a fast thief, right? Like you're looking out for a thief because they're, they're cunning. They're trying to get in through ways that are kind of hidden and secretive. So in, in, in some ways, like the, 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 this end that Peter's given us a picture of, this day of the Lord that will come, is not a picture of it coming fast, like out of nowhere, fast, but comes in a way that maybe we're not expecting. Comes in a way that we're not looking for. That's how a thief comes in. Like, in fact, one... Um, um, uh, one lexicon like uh, um, translates this verse this way or this this word this way. It says thief. Uh, the the meaning of it in the original language was one who steals by stealth or in secret, rather than um, in the open with violence. And so it's this idea of the thief coming through a cracked window, um, a slightly ajar door, um, getting around your security system, um, coming in when you're not paying attention. Um, that kind of stuff when you accidentally left the garage door open like I did last night. Um, but praise the Lord, no thieves were around. Um, no, like, but that's the, the idea. Versus a thief who just comes in and bangs down the front door and at gunpoint takes what he wants. That the way God comes is more stealthily, more sideways than through the front door. I mean, just think about that for a minute. That the way God's going to come and act is an ironic contrast to the false teachers who secretly bring in destructive schools of thought that we talked about in chapter two, who's, um, who talk about God in a way that's not the way of God. Um, but the way that God comes, the action that God takes is sly, uh, without wanting violence of the false teachers, without this drive to take what isn't theirs for their own good. God comes in to take what is his, but does so without this kind of bull in your face push the door open, take everything you want, take everything that he wants from you. Rather than bursting through the front door, he slips in through the cracked window. We could play this analogy out further, and unfortunately we don't have time for it, but I do think it's important for us to think about that the way God comes is going to be different than the way we think it is going to be. And how that impacts the way we live as his people. So God's final action Maybe in some best way to sum it up, God's final action won't be like the flood of Genesis 8 and 9 that we talked about last week. This full-on frontal deluge of all that is evil and flooding and covering it, destroying everything. In fact, as we talked about last week, God promises that he won't ever do that again. But that's not his intention. Like, that's not the way he's going to work. So Peter's just affirming what's already been truly spoken by God himself. But God will come, and his coming will be in a, in a slightly different manner. But it'll be just as effective as the flood. In fact, it'll be even more effective than the flood, more holistic. Peter says, and he continues in verse 10, he says, not only for the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away, that is, disappear with a roar. Some translations shout it, with the shout of the Lord, 
the voice of the Lord, a loud cry. That is spoken word, the same word as we saw last week that formed the world. The same way in which God creates and judges. Again, right here, the, the passing away with the same voice. Now, heavens in the scripture, um, again, we hear that and we kind of think, we, uh, maybe, we, maybe we think, we think sky or we think the, the, the place of God's existence, right? That's not the way heavens is talked about in scripture. So heavens in the scripture is the expanse that exists between the waters of earth and the waters above that is the dwelling place of God, right? This is how it's talked about in Genesis 1 and verse 6 through 8. It says, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And God called the expanse heaven. God called this thing that separates that differentiates the dwelling of God's place, this, the, where the waters are, and earth, right? It, it separates this kind of whole universe into our specific little place within it. Prior to the fall, this expanse was traveled regularly by God. Heaven and earth came together in the garden. This is what the picture of Genesis 2 is, right? God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. But sin separated, cast out humanity out of the dwelling of God. And this separation grew so vast that God had to act to destroy the evil, i.e. the flood, right? That we talked about last week. But he promised to continue the restorative work through different means, through the sacrifice of life as patient justice for the taking of life. That's what we saw last week. And Isaiah 34 says it this way, that later there's this imagery that's repeated in Isaiah and in, in Revelation. There'll be a time when the heavens, this expanse is rolled back like a scroll, rolled up, removed, dissolved, passed away. And at that moment, the purifying presence of God will dwell fully on earth as it is in heaven. And the host of heaven, those who reside in this, this world, this, this world that's beyond our world, but not different than our world, the world of divine and human things, find themselves under judgment. Isaiah 34 says this, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the heavens roll up like a scroll and their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Where does the vine imagery come from? You remember where Jesus uses that? In John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. We've sung it, I think, most Sundays in, this, in our time here. I mean, just think about that, that image that Jesus is saying like, I am the vine, you are the branches. And here he is, these hosts of heaven fall away from life, from life as it really is, from the source of life. He goes on, um, and Peter does back in, in, our, in, our, in our letter today, and he says, not only will there be this time when what's dissolved, um, this, this layer that keeps us from the presence of God, from the dwelling of God fully on earth as it is in heaven, um, and not only will be this time where God's presence shows up and, and judges, but like specifically, and we'll see that he kind of fleshes out for us this Isaiah picture. He goes on and says, and the elements. Some translations say heavenly bodies, but again, the idea both in Greek and in, in Hebrew thought is that these are both physical and spiritual entities, beings, whether they manifest as kings and rulers and nations or as, um, or as moons and planets. Our kids are studying planets right now. All the planets are named after Roman gods, Greek gods, for a reason, right? Like these heavenly bodies, they're all named after these divine things, right? Because they, they tend to, these things, these heavenly bodies, these elements tend to be that which you are used to chart the course of our daily living. Again, whether that be the celestial beings, the stars in the, in, the, in the planets, just think about how people map their way through deserts and through oceans. Or whether they be kings and nations, those who have authority to set rules and laws. These, these things, these elements, are what actually shape the course of life, or what feel like shape the course of life, right? Whether naturally, quote unquote, in, this, in this, the turning of the earth, or practically in the reality of the laws and the regulations that we live in, in our time and place. And he says, and Peter does in, um, in verse 10, that these elements, these things which chart the course of our daily lives will be laid bare, that is purified and dissolved. 
he'll be broken up. Peter assumes, what our scriptures assume, that there's this collective nature, collective coherence of these elements, which is opposed in some way to the way of God. Where does he get that from? Where does, he, where does Peter get this idea that there's a collective nature? Because the idea of being dissolved is this picture of something that's tied together and roped together and, and mingled together, untied. That's the imagery of the word. That they're laid bare, which means purified. We'll talk about that in a minute. But like that they're untied. So where does he get this picture? There's actually a couple of Psalms that speak to it. Um, the first is Psalm chapter two. It says in Psalm chapter two, the beginning of our, our book of prayer it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Our book that teaches us how to pray, how to, to respond to, God's, to, to God in prayer, teaches us first off to see the world as the rulers of the world, the kings and their counsel, as in this like collaborative thing in opposition to the rule and reign of God through his anointed. That, that the way that they lead is wanting to lead humanity outside of the need for God. Let us burst their bonds, that God somehow binds us rather than frees us. They work together for this. Now, we all know nations don't work really well together, right? We all know leadership even within, within a single nation doesn't work together. So this imagery isn't like there's some sort of secret collaborative group in the background, like all talking to each other and texting one another of how do we destroy um, humanity by leading them away from God? How do we control humanity and lead to our own flourishing being away from God? But no, like there's this, there's this thing that runs through all of them, which is a desire to be loosed from God and not bound by God to flourish in their own wisdom and not in the wisdom of God. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, um, uh, Moses will write this kind of vision of the nations being, being spread apart and will apply this to um, these nations being taken counsel from, being, um, uh, being ruled over by divine beings. Um, ones who were created beings just like humanity, but, um, but who have taken ownership of humanity in some sort of collaborative way. And then in Psalm 82, the psalmist once again, kind of taking the idea that there's this collaborative um, working together, um, takes it and pulls it out of the earthly realm of the kings in Psalms 2 and pulls it into the heavenly realms of heavenly beings in Psalm 82. It says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, the gods, he holds judgment. In the midst of divine beings, he holds judgment. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is God speaking to the gods, right? Speaking to the heavenly bodies, Mars and Venus and Neptune or, or the kings of the earth. He says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is how God says what you should have done. This is what, this is what I would have you rule. This is how I would have you rule. And he says about them that they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. As we talked about last week, Jesus is coming. What does it do? It removes all that is shaken. And leaves only that is unshakable, right? And I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, this is what the psalmist teaches us to pray, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit what? Not the divine places, not the heavenly bodies, but all the nations. This is the understanding of the Hebrew mind. This is what the, how they understood the world to function and how the Greek mind understood the world to function. That, that there is in this thing that moves the world forward, that appears to move the world forward, this collaboration of divine and human entities that have power and influence that move us here and there, right? And so when Peter says that all the elements, both physical and spiritual, are laid bare, they're purified, they're shown to be what, what the psalmist says that they are, fools living in darkness. 
Everything that's shakable in them is removed from them. It's proven to be true that they are fools in their own right, that they have tried to leave the, the domain of God and create their own kingdoms. And this, this collaborativeness is broken up. Now there's no opposition to the presence of God on earth as it is in heaven. These celestial bodies, these elements, which seem to rule the world in opposition to God at times, will be purified, tested, proven, judged by Jesus. And their collusion will be dissolved, untied, broken up. Their fruitful, fruitlessness will be showed for what it is, as they, as Isaiah said, rot away and fall from the vine, like leaves from the vine. This is the picture that Peter's leaving with us, that, that what God is doing right now is he's proving all these things to be true. He's proving who really rules the world in a way that seems different than, than the world tries to rule. But there is a time coming when all that will be exposed, all that will be brought to the light. And not just all that the rulers of this earth are brought to the light and purified, but everything on earth will be exposed to. He keeps going. And the uninhibited dwelling of God with the colluding forces against God's desire, his love um, being, being tested and judged and set right, then the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The tr little translation is brought to light or found out. Will be exposed, brought to light or found out. And listen, this idea of being found out is, a, is an idea of a forensic investigation um, of the heart, a quality which is regularly credited to God. In other words, God will search the heart of all the works done on earth. God will search it out. A searching that according to the psalmist of Psalm 139 can be a welcome examine. Why? Because he knows us. He formed us. He's called us into life. And yes, Sometimes the searching can hurt, right? I mean, the writer of Hebrews is really clear. Like, there's a reason why the people in, um, uh, as we looked at last week in Exodus, didn't want to go up on the mountain, right, to meet God. They wanted Moses to go for them. Because there's this overwhelmingness that comes at the, the, the direct connection with God. I mean, think about Isaiah, right? When Isaiah stands before God, like Isaiah falls to his face because he recognizes his own Impurity. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. But what does God do to Isaiah right there in, in that moment? He lifts him up and he calls him pure. He touches his, touches his lips with the, with the coal, through fire. He's made pure. He's, he's exposed for who God sees him to be. Not dismissing all that is evil and broken, but not destroying it either. It's the same thing Paul says will be, um, that we'll go through in our life. It's built on Jesus. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, verse 10. Let me just flip over there. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Same thing as Peter. There's a foundation being laid. I'm building upon it. And he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation of faith. There is no other foundation of life other than the life of Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, will be examined, found out, exposed, brought to light. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one through fire. Again, this goes right back to what Peter said at the very beginning. There is a way of life in Jesus that is really fruitful. It proves through the test of time to be fruitful and effective. There's a way that also doesn't. Like you can have the faith. You can still be built on the foundation of Jesus, but you're just building with straw and hay. But I want more for you. I want precious stones, jewels. Sorry. I want you to be able to get through to the end in the way that God intends you to be. Listen, all that separates heaven and earth as it was in the garden will be removed, reclaimed, restored through Jesus. All that is lasting will be the only things that remain, which is something utterly new, says Peter. This is the vision that he has for us. He kind of walks us through this image of the thing that separates us from God being dissolved. 
when God comes, all the things that we think control the earth, that move the earth around and spin it forward, are found out, test, purified, dissolved. There is no collusion against the Lord anymore. There is, no, there is nothing leading us into, into rebellion against the Lord anymore. And so all the things in our own hearts that are rebellious against the Lord, all the things in our own heart that are off the mark get exposed, but they get exposed and purified in order for life to live and not be destroyed. And this is what Peter says is totally different. He says, since all these things in verse 11 are thus to be dissolved, all the colluding forces, divine and human, broken up. And jumping to verse 12, he says, the heavens, the separating expanse of God's presence, set on fire and dissolved. And the elements, those forces that set the course of life, are laid bare, purified, exposed for what they are, melting away in the consuming presence of our Father. Then what is left is nothing short of what we await, a new heaven and a new earth that is the home of righteousness, that is the home of the place of relating rightly to God, to ourselves and to others without inhibitors freely. That's the vision that we have. That's the place that we're moving towards. And how we're getting there is through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through living and building our life upon the life of Jesus. This is our future, a certain and sure foundation, which God is currently bringing about through the person and power and promise of Jesus. So what other sort of people are we to be? That's what Peter asked. Ones who are aware, that is awaiting, and who in most translations it translates it um, um, uh, hastening, but the idea there is eagerly desiring, eagerly waiting for, eagerly longing for the final act of judgment and salvation. Why would we eagerly long for that if it wasn't something that brought life? If it wasn't life forever? Yes, there's an intimidation factor to it, right? Like we've talked about that last week. We admit that. But the intimidation is because we miss out on how God is actively and persistently and compassionately throughout time, moving time forward, that this is who God really is. And so therefore, why wouldn't we want to live holy, different, set apart? and justly, godly kind of lives. Because we're ones who let this future not be too far from our minds and hearts, but who have the knowledge of how God is bringing it about. That's the way, that the way of getting us there, in other words, is being a people who live like Jesus. The way that we get to the future, why it matters today to recognize what God has done in the past, how he's acting in the present, and to have this vision for the future is because we need to be ones who see that the way we get to the future is by being people who are like Jesus. Verse 14 says this. Therefore, dear friends, since you are waiting, um, that waiting is a passive, it's, not, it's passive only in uh, not forcing or um, being confident in, right? So you're waiting, not just sitting twiddling your thumbs, but you're waiting not trying to make something happen, but confident that it will happen, right? You're waiting for these. Be diligent. That is, make every effort to be brought to light. The same word that's the, the word used in verse 10 to that the, world will, the works of the world will be. They'll be brought to light. They'll be exposed. Be diligent to be brought to light, to be found by Jesus without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter referred to the false teachers and those who follow their poor model for life with God and others as blots and blemishes in verse 13 of chapter two. Creatures who are polluted or impure and thus cannot be offered as a pleasing sacrifice to ensure the continuation of life. That their life, unlike what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, cannot be offered as a pleasing sacrifice, a spiritual act of worship. And while we tend to think of purity in moral terms, understandably so, um, and with some correctness to that. Purity had nothing to do with the behavior of the animal in the sacrificial system. Did you know that? We think of it behaviorally, right? We hear the word pure. That be Peter's charge to us to be without spot or blemish, to be pure, unpolluted, as a moral thing, right? And certainly has morality to it. But if you think about it in the sacrificial system, to be pure the animal, or in this case, the person, must be completely itself or their selves as possible. It had nothing to do with, with the behavior of the animal, but had to do with not allowing admixtures of something else and having no functional deficiencies. 
purity in the sacrificial system had everything to do with not being muddied and mixed. And specifically for humanity, and seen in the context of false teachers, it has more to do with what motivates us, where our hearts lie, where our desires lie. One, ones who are not motivated, who have one motivation for what they do, who harbor no hidden agendas. That's the idea of purity, of being without spot or blemish. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. They shall see God. They shall see who God really is and who, what life in him really looks like. Not because they've got, they've got every moral behavior figured out, but because they're motivated after one thing. Because they're truly who they're meant to be in God. And that's what they're after. That they harbor no hidden agendas towards God, towards themselves, towards others. To have a pure heart is to have a heart like Jesus who died as one without spot or blemish. A truth that Peter's faith family were already established upon. In the first letter, he wrote this. He says, reminding them, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, and that you were trapped in this cycle, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. To be without spot or blemish is to have a heart that is the heart of Jesus. To have Jesus' heart. It is singularly motivated towards the will of the Father, towards the desire of the Father. Who has no hidden agenda for others and doesn't try to manipulate God for his own agenda. It was Christ's life that ransomed them, freed them, bought them, and it's Christ's life that they are called to. A life with a singular motivation. A life whole at peace with God, ourselves, and others even through the troubles and trials of daily living. That's what Peter says we're called to. A life like Jesus, a life after Jesus. Peter's encouragement is to be found, think about this, you just hear this again. Peter's encouragement is to be found as completely yourself. No mixture of others, no mixtures of, of the, the things that seem to control the world, who they say you are, what they say you are, what they say you're about. No false understandings of yourself or even false understandings of God. No mixture of those things is possible. In him, like Jesus, motivated by a singular vision of your identity and calling in Jesus and harboring that is looking for nothing more or less than what God desires for you. Which we've seen throughout. It was what? It's flourishing. Not destruction, but flourishing. Peter's encouragement, again, is to be found completely yourself. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? To be found truly who you are in Jesus. That's what Peter's encouragement is. To live a life as you're truly made to be in Jesus for the sake of others. A calling that's worth making every effort to ensure you experience the most of it, right? That's what Peter assumes. That's what he gave his life to. And that's what he invites his faith family to, make, to give their life to as well. To be brought to the light by Jesus. To be pure in heart and at peace. Through life with Jesus is Peter's final exhortation to his faith family, who he assumes can and will experience this. Next, uh, next month, we'll, um, or next, starting next week, I guess, um, we're going to spend a lot of time on looking at, okay, so how do we live this life of peace? How do, we, how do we, as ones who are called to the life of Jesus, to, the pure, to a pure heart, <laughs> without spot or blemish to Jesus' heart, how do we live this out? And so, I won't, we weren't going to go into the details of that today. That's what we're going to spend all of November doing. But let me leave you with this last charge, and it's the last charge that Peter leaves. He says, listen, like everything that I've said, this is, this is verse 15. Um, he says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Remember that, listen, the, the reality of today, of you being here today, of you breathing today, is the patience of the Lord. That's the patience of the Lord who wants you to live into this life that he's given you in Jesus to the fullest of it. And it's your salvation, not your destruction. It's your salvation. His patience and the way he works is so that you won't be destroyed, but so that you might be saved. And listen, Paul's written all about this, right? The verse 16, 
Um, and as, he, as Paul writes about these, from the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in of, of these matters, there are some of these things in them that are hard to understand. Peter admits, like, listen, not all this makes sense right away. Like what I've said, what, Pete, what, Paul, what Paul affirms and confirms in his writings, some of it's a little confusing. Which, and this is the word, which the ignorant, in the actual translation, it's untutored, and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. In other words, Peter says this. Listen, the reason we, we stumble in this, we, 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 we trip over the, these, this truth of who God is and how he's acting through the cross of Christ, is it a, one of two things. We're untutored. He's not our apprentice. We're not his apprentice. He's not our master. We're untutored. Ignorant doesn't mean like you're, like you're naive or you're uneducated. It means you don't have somebody teaching you. You're following a bad teacher. And the teacher is not Jesus. Because Jesus shows us all these realities of who God is and what God is doing, right? He's the perfect revelation of the Father. And so we stumble when Jesus is not our master. When we're looking at other models to be the models for our life. We stumble. We twist scripture for our own destruction. Or when we're unsteady. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? What is unsteady? You're unsure of who you are in Jesus. Your identity and your calling isn't grounded. It's something that the world's told you. It's something that you've told yourself. It's not this thing that Christ has called you to. It's not a sure foundation that Peter lays out for us in the first chapter. That's it. Those, those two things. Either Jesus isn't our master or our identity and calling is on shaky ground. And so when we're struggling, when we feel that way, where do we come back to? We come back to the surety of who Jesus is, the one who saves us, our master who's ransomed us and saved us and called us into life, who tells us who we are and what we're for. That's what we do. And we continue to walk forward, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ but that we get to experience all that Peter assumes is ours to experience in Jesus. Untutored by Jesus, we become unapprenticed. We follow poor models. We forget how God is and was and continues to work. And in doing so, we're unstable because we've forgotten who gives us life, who shows us life, who has given his life so that we might know life. As we conclude our time together, let's pray. Let's, Let's do this. As we conclude our time together, normally we have like a song. So I'm throwing Chaz a, a curveball here. Normally we have a, have a song, but in, um, and then we come back up and do communion. But I want to give us a minute just to kind of reflect in this. It's been a long letter. It's been a good letter. It's been a good time, hopefully, in Second Peter revealing. I know it's been convicting for me. And so I just want us to hear these words from Peter's first letter and sit in them for a little while. Um, and then as, we've, as you feel led, um, we'll come back up in a few minutes and we'll do communion together, okay? Um, but here's what I want to, want to say. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he tells us this. Um, he said, so roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gifts that are coming when Jesus arrives. That was Peter's encouragement to us in the first chapter, right? This is, this is his charge. Don't lazily sit back in these old grooves of evil doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. We do now. We've, we've walked through this together, right? Like we know where the stumbling blocks are, the obstacles are, where we might trip up. So, so we know. We know where those things are. So as obedient children, let ourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, by the life of Jesus, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. For God said, I am holy, so you be holy. You call out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way. Don't forget it. He's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. He won't let us get by because we know it. We've seen it. Like we can't just go keep living the way we want to live. Your life is a journey. You must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It costs God plenty to get you out of the dead end, empty headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished sacrificial lamb. And this was not afterthought. This was no afterthought. This was no afterthought. Even though 
it has only lately at the end of the ages become public knowledge. God always knew he was going to do this for you. God always knew he was going to do this for you. How amazing is that? It's because of the sacrificed Messiah, whom God then raised from the dead and glorified, that you trust God, that you know you have a future in God. Chaz is going to play for us. We're just going to have a couple minutes of just quiet. We're going to leave up on the screen um, a meditation from 1 Peter. If you feel your mind wandering, um, just kind of come back and reread it. Let it kind of anchor us down into this charge of now that we know what God has done for us, that he's given us this life in him, in Jesus, in a way in which for us to see the obstacles that keep us from the life. Let's be ones who sit and trust that we have a future in God through life with God in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your grace to give us space and time where even in um, yeah, where we can we can just remember where we can remember, Lord, that from the foundations of the world, not as afterthought but with intention. You have acted towards humanity, towards us with a steadfast mercy that you long for us to release the things of this world that we hold to, the ways of this world that we follow, that keep us from life as you have spoken it into being and to turn and cling to the one who is life, the way, the truth, and the life. And I know, Father, sometimes, at least for me, we can get lost in the metaphors of that and and keep that distant from the realities and practicalities of relationships and jobs. But help us in this moment, Father. Help us in this moment. In a place of peace and rest in what you've done in Jesus. See you. And be ones who, because we see you, live like you, for you. In your son's name.